The defendant's commission of these four murders over a 10-day period is one of the worst killing sprees in the history of this state. Skin them sometimes, uh, slit them, slit them all the way open. Uh, I'm here looking for the spirits of anybody that still remains. I have a device in my hand. If you would like to talk to it, please come forward. Tell me your story. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people. Then I would have felt better. Then when I felt like I really offered society something. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Hey everyone, welcome back to Serial Spirits. I'm Annie Weebs. This past Saturday, we held our live event at the Old Hospital on College Hill in Williamson, West Virginia, with Jerry and Tracy from Hillbilly Horror Stories. We had an incredible time, and we couldn't be more appreciative to Jerry and Tracy for the invite and to everyone who attended. We told stories, we raffled off some merch, and most importantly, made some new friends. We love each and every one of you and are so grateful for that experience. The story that we told at the live event is one that I first heard about five years ago, before we were podcasting and I was still doing live radio, and I've never forgotten it. It's a story that's shrouded in mystery, but also wrapped in the love and the hope that one family would never let go of. For decades, one lone billboard stood alongside Route 16 in Fayetteville, West Virginia, a billboard depicting five dark-haired, dark-eyed children ranging in ages from 5 to 14. Five children who, according to their parents, George and Jenny Sauter, vanished without a trace early in the hours of Christmas morning in 1945 when their house went up in flames. Did the five missing Sauter children perish in the fire? Or was something else, or someone else, more sinister to blame? This is the story of the missing Sauter family five. George Sauter, born on the Italian island of Sardinia in 1895, immigrated to the United States in 1908 with his older brother. His brother almost immediately returned to Italy leaving 13-year-old George in the U.S. alone. But George was smart and ambitious and soon found work with the Pennsylvania Railroad. Business eventually led him to the small Italian immigrant town of Fayetteville, West Virginia, where he met his future wife, Jenny, while she worked in her family's store. George and Jenny married shortly after and would have 10 children between 1923 and 1943. George started a trucking company, and the family was well-respected amongst the middle-class town. Christmas Eve 1945 in the Sauter home began uneventfully. Present in the home at the time were George and Jenny and nine of their ten children, John, age 23, Marion, 17, George, Jr., 16, Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 9, Jenny, eight, Betty, five, and the baby, Sylvia, age two. 
Their oldest son, Joe, was away serving in the military at the time. The children all shared rooms on the second floor and in the attic space of the house. That night, George and Jenny allowed the children to stay up later than usual because of the holiday, asking them only to turn out the lights in the house before they went to sleep. At 12.30 a.m., Jenny was awoken by the sound of the family's house phone ringing. She got up to answer, the rest of the family seemingly undisturbed by the loud ring. When Jenny answered, she said that a woman on the other end of the line was laughing. It sounded like a party, with others laughing in the background as well and glasses clinking. Jenny stated that the woman on the line asked to speak with someone, but the name was unfamiliar and difficult to hear because of the noise. Jenny told the woman that she had the wrong number and hung up. Jenny would later state that when she got up to answer the phone, the lights in the house were still on and daughter, Marion, was asleep on the couch. Jenny left the lights on and went back to bed. About 30 minutes later, as Jenny was falling asleep, she stated that she heard a loud bang on the roof of the house and then rolling, like something had fallen onto the roof of the house and then rolled off. It wasn't until she smelled smoke that she realized something was wrong. Jenny roused George out of bed, and they realized that the house was on fire. They grabbed two-year-old Sylvia, whose crib was in their bedroom, and ran outside. John, Marion, and George Jr. had made it out as well, and they realized that five of the middle children, Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny, and Betty, must still be inside. The boys attempted to go back into the house to help their siblings out, but the staircase that led to the second-floor bedroom was completely engulfed in flames. The family's house phone would not work, so Marion ran to the neighbor's house to call the fire department. Unfortunately, because it was small-town West Virginia in 1945, the town's fire department consisted of a list of men that had to be individually called by a phone tree system when alerted of a fire. One firefighter would call the next, and that firefighter would call the next, until all were eventually reached. That fact, combined with the fact that it was also Christmas Eve, meant that help might not come for a while. Unbeknownst to the family, a neighbor also saw the fire and ran to the nearby tavern to attempt to contact the fire department as well. With no one able to reach the operator, the neighbor drove into town and found the fire chief, F.J. Morris, who officially activated the phone tree. George jumped into action in an attempt to save the missing children as well. He typically kept a ladder just outside the house, and he rushed to get it in an attempt to climb in a second-story window. But according to George, the ladder was missing from its usual spot. He then ran to his two coal trucks that were parked at the house thinking that he might be able to drive one to the side of the house and use it to climb in a window. Even though George said that both trucks had been working the previous day, both trucks now refused to start. The home burned intensely for about an hour, reducing the structure to rubble and ash. It was 8 o'clock on Christmas morning before the fire department arrived, but at that point there was nothing left to be done but to recover the bodies of their five missing children who George and Jenny believed must have been inside. But when the family members in the fire department began to search, they were surprised by what they found. Nothing. 
Everyone on the premises, even Fire Chief Morris, were unable to locate anything that looked like human remains amongst what was left of the home. Chief Morris stated that the fire must have burned so intensely that the remains of the children had been cremated. A state police inspector examined the remains and stated that he felt the source of the fire had been faulty electrical wiring. The investigation went no further than that. Within just a few days of the fire, George bulldozed what remained of their family home, filling in the rest with dirt with plans of planting a memorial garden for their lost children. The coroner's office issued the children's death certificates just before the new year, stating that the causes of death were fire or suffocation. But within a few short weeks of the fire, people began to come forward with stories of supposed sightings of children who greatly resembled the five Sauter children. And George and Jenny began to think the impossible. Were their children still alive? The first report came from a local woman who said that she believed she saw the Sauter children in a car driving away from the home while the fire was still burning. Another woman working at a tourist stop claimed that she saw the children the day after the fire and served them breakfast. She also noticed a car with Florida license plates in the parking lot at the time the children were at the stop. The most striking claim, however, came from a woman working at a Charleston hotel just about an hour away from their home a week after the fire. The woman claimed that she had seen the Sauter children's pictures in the newspaper and said that she was sure that she had seen four of the five children at that hotel. She said that the children were with two men and two women who were, in her words, of Italian extraction. They registered together and stayed in one room with several beds. It was late at night when the party came in, and the woman stated that she had attempted to talk with the children in a friendly fashion, but one of the men looked at her in a hostile manner and turned towards the children and spoke in Italian. No one else spoke again, and the woman said that the party checked out of the hotel early the next morning. Back in Fayetteville, the Sauter family attempted to mourn the loss of their children, but several things they found there let them believe that maybe there was something to the sightings of these children. First, the ladder that had disappeared on the night of the fire was found at the bottom of an embankment near the home. Had it been thrown there by someone on the night of the fire? Shortly after, Jenny discovered a hard, rubber-type ball in the brush around the house. George said that it looked like a pineapple bomb hand grenade, the type used in military combat. Could this have been what Jenny heard rolling off the roof on the night of the fire? Maybe, according to a Fayetteville bus driver, who stated that late on the night of Christmas Eve, he claimed that he saw people throwing something that looked like balls of fire at the Sauter home. A worker from the telephone company came to repair the line after the fire and reportedly told the family that it appeared that their phone line had been cut, not burned by fire. With all of this information sparking new thoughts in the minds of the Sauter family, George, Jenny, and the children all recalled some strange events leading up to the fire that now seemed like more than coincidences. First, 
a man had shown up at the Sauter home asking for work. George stated that they had none at the time, but stated that the man had looked at the home's electrical fuse box and told George that it would cause a fire. George told the man that he had actually just had the box rewired and inspected, and all should be fine. In another incident, George stated that an insurance salesman came to the house and tried to sell him an insurance policy a few weeks before the fire. When George refused the policy, he stated that the salesman became irate, yelling at him that his house would go up in smoke and his children would be destroyed because of the dirty remarks that he had made about Mussolini. George was a staunch critic of Italy's leader at the time, Benito Mussolini, and made his political beliefs known amongst those in the small Italian immigrant town. Had he angered someone with his political beliefs so much that they murdered half of his family? The remaining Sauter children also claimed that in the days before the fire, they had noticed men parked in a car along the highway close to their home who had watched them while they were on their way home from school. Could all of these occurrences have had something to do with the fire that destroyed the Sauter family? In light of these developments, Jenny Sauter began conducting her own experiments. She had spoken with the local coroner, who told her that a fire has to burn at at least 2,000 degrees for several hours to completely turn a body into ash, bones and all. Jenny began burning animal bones to see if she could replicate the conditions of the fire. None of the animal bones were ever turned to ash. The Sauters hired a private investigator named C.C. Tinsley from Golly Bridge, West Virginia, to examine their case. After his investigation, Tinsley told the family that the insurance salesman who had threatened George over his comments regarding Mussolini had actually been on the coroner's jury that had ruled the fire as an accident. Tinsley also heard rumors that, despite the official report to the Sauters that no remains had been found in the ashes, Fire Chief Morris had found a human heart, which he put inside a metal box and secretly buried at the scene of the fire. As crazy as this sounded, George Sauter and Investigator Tinsley confronted Chief Morris and asked him if he, in fact, had buried human remains at the scene. Chief Morris did indeed say that he had buried something and that he would show the men where to find it. When they dug up the area, they unearthed a box, and inside the box appeared to be some type of fresh organ. Upon examination by the local funeral director, it was determined that the organ was a fresh beef liver that had never been touched by fire. If this story was true, why would the fire chief have gone to such long, bizarre lengths to place it there? By 1949, convinced that their children were still alive, but with no new information, George wrote to the then-FBI director, J. Edgar Hoover, asking for the FBI's assistance in the kidnapping of his children. Hoover replied to George's request in another letter, stating, quote, Although I would like to be of service, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. End quote. Later that year, 
the Sodders hired a pathologist from Washington, D.C. to excavate the site of the fire. During this dig, he uncovered several small bones that he determined were human vertebrae. The bones were sent to the Smithsonian Institute, and it was determined that they were from a male who would have been 16 or 17 years old at the time of his death. He also determined that those bones had never been exposed to fire. In his haste to cover the remnants of the fire, had George accidentally unearthed another unrelated gravesite? No further DNA testing of those bones has been conducted. In the years after the fire and the loss of their five children, the Sauters would receive word that their children, now in or nearing adulthood, had been seen in multiple states. After seeing a picture in a magazine of a group of young girls in New York at a ballet school, George believed that one of the girls in the picture resembled Martha, and he drove there in an attempt to see her. Once there, he was refused entrance into the private school. A woman in St. Louis believed that Martha was also being held in a convent there. This lead also proved to be false. In 1967, a woman in Houston wrote the Sauter stating that Lewis, after a night of drinking, had revealed his true identity to her and that he and Maurice were living in Texas. George and a relative drove to Texas and tracked down the men that this woman had written them about. Neither man was from or had ever heard of the Sauter family. The final and maybe most intriguing piece to the puzzle of this story also arrived at the Sauter home in 1967. Jenny received a letter addressed to her and postmarked from Central City, Kentucky, a small town close to Bowling Green, more than six hours from the Sauter's hometown. Inside the envelope was the picture of a dark-haired, dark-eyed man who bore strong resemblance to the Sauter family. On the back of the picture was written, quote, Louis Sauter, I love Brother Frankie, I-L-I-L boys, A-90132 or 35, end quote. In one last effort to locate the sender of this picture, the Sauters hired another private investigator to travel to Central City and look into it. The private investigator left, never reported back to the Sauters, and was never heard from again. George Sauter died in 1969. Afterward, Jenny stayed in the family home, tending to the garden where the fire had occurred. When she died in 1989, the family removed the billboard that had sat for so many years as a reminder of a family who never gave up hope. Sylvia, the youngest of the Sauter children present on the night of the fire, died in 2021. According to her family, Sylvia stated that she believed her siblings had not died that night in the fire, never giving up hope that the family may, someday, have an answer. Maybe the most special part of our live event this past weekend is that we actually had the honor of welcoming a member of the Sauter family to that event, who we invited on stage with us for a panel discussion. Joe Sauter, the great-grandson of George and Jenny Sauter, joined us for the event and discussed the story with us. I actually met Joe at a paranormal investigation we held about a month prior to our live event. The universe saw fit to bring us all together at that appointed time, 
And since then, Joe and his wife Lisa have joined our group of ghost hunting weirdos. So a huge thanks goes out to Joe and Lisa Sauter for their support of Serial Spirits. We are now proud to call them fellow paranormal investigators and friends. Thanks to everyone for tuning in to Serial Spirits. Please, if you like what you hear, feel free to rate and review the show. Five stars and some nice words go a long way in the podcasting world, and we appreciate each and every one of you. Until next time, bye-bye. Hey guys, Annie here. We're rounding out the final weeks of summer now. The last days of bonfires, campouts, late nights with friends. So what says end of summer celebration better than a summer camp? And what says summer camp better than a creepy story? Serial Spirits is inviting our listeners to Serial Spirits Summer Camp. We want everyone to send us their spookiest stories, ghosts and haunted houses, creepy cryptid encounters, UFOs and aliens, even your most terrifying true crime tales. And then as summer draws to a close, we will share your stories on Serial Spirits. If you have a story you'd like to send to us, you can either record yourself telling your own story and send it to us, or you can type it out for us to read on an upcoming episode. Once you've recorded or written your story, you can send it to us on social media, on Facebook at Serial Spirits, or to me personally, Annie Weibel. You can also send it to me on Instagram at Annie underscore Weebs. Or you can send it by old-fashioned email to Annie Weibel at AOL.com. So, meet me at Camp Crystal Lake and gather around our campfire and share your stories with Serial Spirits Summer Camp. Now through the beginning of September, so don't wait. Send us your stories today.